All right, good people. Welcome to episode two of Peeling the Onion. Yes, Peeling the Onion. My guest on the episode was the mighty Henry Rollins. It was such an honor to get the guy to take time off and to just get him to share some of his stories. He's been around since the 80s. And he's done amazing work with Black Flag, Rollins Band. He's been uh, doing spoken words since 1983. And he's been writing books since 1984. He's done about 40 books. I just read his newest book. I really liked it. Uh, Preparing for the show, I also listened to the audiobook of Get in the Van that he released in 94. And he actually got a Grammy in 95 for that one. And it's really good stuff. He's been he's been around the block. So I hope you guys like that. Uh, my name is Elvar Elvarsson. I'm coming at you from Reykjavik, Iceland. We have about four hours of sunlight these days. Please come and visit. Uh, if you guys want to keep in touch, uh, you can add me on Instagram. It's peeling the onion pot. Uh, I'm gonna be posting like the next interview so you can just keep you posted when I when I put up episodes if you want to send me uh, a letter you can also send me on peeling the onion pod at gmail.com uh, and if you like the show you can rate it and review it that's that's helpful if you like uh, what's going on here that's about all I gotta save I guess so here's my conversation with Henry Rollins. Can you see or hear me now? Yeah, I can see and hear you. All right. I'm a bit of a Luddite. And so the fact that I got this uh, Zoom thing together on my end is a, a small miracle. What's a Luddite? A Luddite is someone who doesn't know his or her way around technology. Like I'm doing the first Zoom interview, you know, like I've never done it before either. So I had to Google some things. Ah, yeah. I've um, I've never set one up. I, I've just uh, gotten used to doing them because of uh, the modern age. Right. If you said if you told me to set up a Zoom meeting on my end, I would be absolutely helpless. All right. So, what's up, man? How you been? What have you been up to? Well, uh, I've been back uh, off the road for about six weeks now. It'll be six weeks tomorrow, or that is to say, I've been off the road for forty-one days. All right. And uh, mentally, it's healthy, at least for me, to get off a tour as quickly as possible. Like when the tour ends, it's not healthy to say, I've been home for three days. I've been home for four days. You just got to put it behind you and get on to the next thing. After touring for two years in 28 countries and doing 261 shows, that's not always an easy thing to do because you go from one very regimented lifestyle where every workout is about, you know, tour, every bite of food, everything you do is about the next leg of the tour starting, or you have a show that night or you're flying to a show or whatever. And then I I come back here uh, to my home and I can do things all day. I can not, 
you know, it, time becomes far more fluid and there's less urgency. And quite honestly, I prefer the urgency, the schedule, and I have a lot to do, but there's nothing like the pressure of being on stage at 8 p.m. to focus the mind. And so here I, I have a ton of office work to do. Uh, my 24-hour gym, which I love, is two traffic lights away from me. Nice. So I have no, I have no excuse to miss a workout. And food and the mail uh, are a few traffic lights from my small and uninteresting house. And so I have to maintain a vigorous schedule without the incentive of you've got a show tonight. And so to switch back to that kind of uh, metabolism and uh, discipline uh, is kind of trying, but um, I'm kind of good at it now in that I've, I've, I'm, I'm not all that new at this. So that's what I've been doing. Getting right. used to the home, getting used to the home routine. You've been in Nashville now for what, like two years? About two years, yeah. Uh, like, you had been in LA pretty much since you left DC with Black Flag, right? Like, good forty yes. years. Yes, uh, over forty, about forty years. Yeah, I, I had. There was a time in the nineteen nineties. I was living in New York and Los Angeles, where uh, my bandmates were New Yorkers. And so I was living with them. So I'd rent an apartment, you know, get a year's a year lease, but I was still paying rent in Los Angeles. And so um, I was bi-coastal, you know, for like three or five months at a time for a few years. But by and large, yeah, uh, I lived in Los Angeles. I just think it's amazing how long you stayed there because like judging from your work, you absolutely hated it. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's, it's just kind of laziness. Uh, it's just kind of, I tell people, it's where my futon and my milk crate of broken stuff kind of ended up after Black Flag broke up. Okay. And I'm an East Coast person. And I don't know if you've ever uh, spent any time in the United States. I can't necessarily recommend it. But um, the East Coast mentality and metabolism is very different than the West Coast, where the East Coast is very much, uh, if you've ever been to New York or been around a New Yorker, you know, high metabolism in your face. They take up a lot of room and, you know, they're obviously wonderful. Uh, the West Coast variety of Americans are a bit more relaxed, uh, no less deadly. Uh, it's just a different metabolism whatsoever. And after many years of living there, I never really assimilated. But when I'd be in Washington, D.C., where I come from, visiting uh, people I grew up with, I would feel very L.A., when I was there, but perpetually in Los Angeles, I always felt very East Coast, like nothing moves fast enough. You know, people are just too nice. It, I don't, we just don't believe it. And it, it hit me a few years ago that, you know, I'm not young anymore. And my manager, she said to me, she's really smart. You know, she said, you, you really want to grow old in this city? And I went, wow, that's a good question. No, is the answer. And um, let's make some plans. And so the last two years have been like uh, living in a, an environment with gravity. That is to say, in Tennessee, you have seasons. It rains. Right. Uh, th there will be snow in a couple of weeks. You have to you know, go get your food because my, my road will be undrivable for like two to four days. 
uh, and I have a, an economy car. I'll just like, you know, slide all the way down to the highway. And, and so uh, deer are, are on my lawn. Um, people ring the doorbell on Halloween. Like, you know, there, there's humans in my neighborhood with kids who want candy on October 31st. And in Los Angeles, you know, every day is kind of this anonymous, cloudless, hot, baked desert hell. And when it rains, you stand outside like it's raining. It, it, you celebrate because it's like four days a year for 30 minutes at a time. We're here. It rains all the time and it gets cold and it gets hot and the, the leaves come off the trees. And it's I, I really I think it's healthy for a human to have those seasonal changes. And I, I truly look forward to them. And it's been, you know, I, I kind of live in my office. I'm, I'm working every day uh, on kind of boring projects that must get done. And I take frequent breaks. Like once an hour, I just go outside and just look at the trees and smell the air because it's so, it's so gorgeous around here. Nice. Where in Los Angeles, you stand outside and you get covered with a layer of soot. Um, like, truly, like anything outside gets covered with like this kind of layer of car exhaust. Like, you know, your car, like the windows get dirty because of the air. And here, um, it's just nothing like that. And, um, you know, Tennessee, the state, has a lot of work to do. It's a, if you will, red state uh-huh. who is, uh, you know, afraid of, of science and liter- uh, literacy and men dressing as women and reading to children in, li- in libraries on the weekends. Uh, I think they're afraid of uh, <clears throat> men in drag. Uh, inspiring young young people to want to read. <laughs> I think that's the main fear. Yeah, they it's might kind of far it. south, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is, and, and it's very different than the Hopi changey uh, blue state I was living in for four decades. Right. But um, having been born and raised in Washington D.C., it borders Virginia and Maryland, and so you're kind of in the South in Washington D.C. Where if you go out to the suburbs. You know, there's a lot of you. Hey, man. And so I was raised with that. And now I'm just kind of surrounded by it again. You know, it's not for me to make fun of people, uh, you know, but people here in in Nashville, uh, they call it Nashville friendly, where people are so incredibly polite and nice to each other here. It it, it kind of makes you a better person. Like, I, I, I would like to think I'm polite to everybody, but people are just really incredibly cool here I, I have not met one dud yet and, and and there's a lot of like you know people with their make america great caps again and biden lost bumper stickers and all of that and sometimes i'm, I'm the only car in traffic i'm surrounded by pickup trucks but that person you know with his guns in his pickup truck he will help you fix your flat tire like right now right like and, and that's um I must say, I'm having a a really good time here. So, I want to wind it back to the 60s. You were born in Washington, D.C., right? Yeah, 1961. Do you remember remember what kind of music was around you? And what was kind of the first thing to catch your ear? Well, um, I had a mixture of good and bad in that uh, my mom had pitch-perfect taste in music. I was raised on Bartok, Stravinsky, Beethoven, Wagner, Strauss, Chopin, Miles Davis, uh, Charles, Charles Mingus, John Coltrane, Glenn Campbell, Bob Dylan, 
Bobby Gentry, Dion Warwick, uh, show tunes like Jesus Christ Superstar and Hair, Porgy and Bess, Hello Dolly, Barbara Streisand. Like my mom went to the record store up to two nights a week. Nice. And the record player rarely was not spinning. She would use our tiny television to watch news. And pretty much the rest of the time it was off. And the only time I could turn the TV on was if she was out. Because I turned the TV on. She's like, oh, come on, let's put on a record. I'm like, okay. And so I was raised in this music-centered, like, you know, tiny apartments. And no matter where you are, you know, if the music is on in the living room, you're going to hear it in your bedroom because the apartment is as big as a phone booth. And so I was raised on music, adult music, as a little kid. And then somewhere around fourth grade, which would be like 1970-something, uh, I had Beatles records. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, I, I just liked the Beatles. I still do. And my, I'd go to the record store and my mom would go like, well, here, you know, here's Abbey Road. And I, I had a record player in my room. So as far as records that I attached myself to, it would be Beatles records. And then, you know, my mom would be playing something in the living room. I go like, well, put that one on again. And she would just go here, take it. And she'd buy another copy. And so I ended up with this weird hybridized record collection in my, in my bedroom of like Isaac Hayes, the hair Broadway soundtrack and the Beatles. And so my mom's like adult records and the Beatles, I think, you know, they made songs for everybody. So a little kid can get into an octopus's garden, mm-hmm. but I was, I'd be listening to, you know, like Beethoven and, and Wagner like on my own, I, I, I just liked the music. It was dramatic and scary and, you know, crazy. And so at an early age, I had a, a fairly good grip on music for a, a weird little kid. And then you experience punk rock, what, in the mid-70s? Yeah, I mean, before then, I mean, I, I had a, a Sony clock radio with a single speaker, an AM-FM clock radio, and that that turned into my stereo system because FM radio is now called classic rock. But a long time ago, that programming FM mainstream FM radio on the East coast in the 1970s was oddly eclectic in that you would hear Stevie wonder, like songs from the key of life, right into Ted Nugent, right into cool in the gang, then into Van Halen, Aerosmith, and then Gladys Knight and the Pips. Like, there's this weird mix of R&B and soul mm-hmm. and arena rock. Like, on one station, WPGC. Uh, and that was, like, the local rock station. But they would play the Eagles and uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. And so in an hour, you would hear this melange of R&B, soul, you know, hard rock, you know, Zeppelin. And so... I really liked that eclectic idea in that I loved Gladys Knight and the Pips as much as I liked Aerosmith. But, um, and then I was, you know, I, I had a job. I would buy my own records to, you know, demarcate my own territory. And that was Led Zeppelin, Van Halen, which might sound kind of funny now, but in those days, you know, these, these bands would, would come to town. And, you know, I saw Led Zeppelin. I would see Ted Nugent, Van Halen, Aerosmith, me and Ian MacKay from the band Fugazi. We would go together because, we, you know, we can't get into a club because we're underage. And so it was arena rock that allowed us to buy a ticket 
and go. And the concerts were okay, but you, but it's like you and 18,000 people and the acoustics aren't great. Mm. And all you can smell is marijuana and vomit. And it, it just wasn't, you never felt like you were part of it. You just felt like a spectator. And then punk rock took over our lives. And I think in one like expansive time, we saw Led Zeppelin, which was great in its own way, really great. But then on February 15th, 1979, we saw The Clash at the Ontario Theater in Washington, D.C., which I think is now a condominium, and with Bo Diddley opening. And that was like, and I only found out several years ago that Bo Diddley was a Washington, D.C. resident. Uh, In front of his house, there's now a plaque. Uh, I I had no idea. Anyway, uh, where that house is located, he could have walked to the Ontario theater for the show. But so we were listening to the clash and the Ramones, like early punk rock, like what we could get on the East coast. Cause a lot of those records were imports. And then we would start going to clubs and we never went back to the, the arena again. Cause we're now we're seeing the cramps and the Ramones and, you know, sham 69. And we're driving up to New York to see shows and we're seeing the bad brains and then, you know, suddenly all of your friends are in bands. Like right. Ian is in the Teen Idols. He starts Discord Records. And then a year or so into that, he's in, he, he forms the band Minor Threat. And so music became this thing where you're standing in front of the band and you can, like, you can reach your arm out and, and hit the guy. Right. Because there's no barricade. And the biggest show you'd go to would be at the Ontario Theatre to see the cramps or buzzcocks or something like that. But mainly you were in small clubs or at house parties and all these bands like the, like the bad brains and, and teen idols that, you know, or minor threat would play at house parties. And like, you see these bands playing like next to a couch in front of a TV, you know, cause they're playing in like mom's living room or the basement. And you'd go to bands, band practices. I would go to see minor threat play, in uh, the guitar player's um, uh, parents' basement. And, you know, you get a free Minor Threat show. Like, how cool is that? And this is before they even did their first show. And so that transition into punk rock would be like 78, 79. That was the music that did the lasting damage uh, to myself and the people I grew up with. And, And to this day, you know, decade, literally decades later, Ian Mackay and I, uh, he's my best friend. Uh, we're still talking about it. I mean, we're we're talking about the damned via text about fifteen minutes ago. <laughs> That's awesome. But I can imagine it was just like more alive, more real, more here. You know. Yeah, you know, with the the arena rock experience, you know, you feel just like it. I'm not putting it down, uh, but you, you you're so distant from from the thing and you're never going to meet the band and that's not important you don't need to meet the band necessarily but the 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 difference between you and the person on stage like they're rock gods you know i stood you know i I saw jimmy page and robert plant play it was great but it's unapproachable and then you know you can walk right up to the front of the stage and look up and there's joe strummer and that or you know, you, you get sweated on by Lux Interior or Didi Ramon, 
and like you can feel the kick drum like you're because your st- your your stomach is against the stage you are that close there's no barricade there's no security you know you there's it's just you and the music and that kind of um you know bringing the the you plus music like bringing those two things together so vividly so intimately um it's just the difference between you know the real thing and a picture of the real thing and um for me it was intoxicating like it it, it was overwhelming like i it, summer 79 i graduated from high school and you know i'm free i'm an adult i i had no ideas of college and i'm now able to go into clubs and so that summer i saw the bad brains open for the damned uh at a place called the bayou in washington dc it's probably a condominium now but it was like a rectangular beer barn where the security would beat beat the hell out of you uh just a, a rough room and it's the first time we saw the bad brains and it's right before they were going to make their legendary demo tape uh, in August of that year. They became the Black Dots album on Caroline Records. Mm. And to, to see music that insanely genius, like to see the Bad Brains for the first time and then see the Damned like 20 minutes after the Bad Brains go off for the first time. You, 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 well, I never recovered from that. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and, and seeing the Cramps like play bars is like you and 75 people. Um, there's just no coming back um, from that. And, and it was, I, I have to say, uh, probably the most decisive, influential thing in my life was being young at these shows. Uh, it, I'm still a record collector. I have a radio show. You know, I'm obsessed with music. And this is like all happening 40-some years ago. I, I'm old. And I'm still kind of in it. I, I'm not trying to be young. I don't miss my youth. I'm fine where I am. But um, that music and those people really impacted me. So you traveled with the teen idols, Yamakai's uh, first band, in mid-1980 out to California. Yep. Do you remember, like, it was a, it was a different scene out west, wasn't it? Very much. And um, it made myself and and my uh my colleagues feel a bit amateurish mm. in that you know the california is a very forward-leaning state i mean you know it, it's given you movies and the it world and you know as far as american culture it's probably going to happen in new york and los angeles first and then slowly it will get to nashville and so uh, the Southern California punk rock scene and the San Francisco punk rock scene, there's all kinds of venues. There's radio support. You know, there, there's like record stores that are helping with the shows. And Washington, D.C. had that a little, like one radio station, a couple of record stores, and a, a handful of bands. And California, it was like this punk rock industry where there's tons of people at shows and everyone's got this look and you know the bands are getting radio play it's like this really happening thing and the music is really really good and so we went out there to california and we encounter the circle jerks in san francisco the teen idols are going to play one night the circle jerks are already up there and so we meet the circle jerks and that would be keith morris the original singer in Black Flag. 
And Ian and I are standing in front of the guy from the Nervous Breakdown EP. It's like, you know, meeting Skinny Elvis. You had, like, heard the, you had heard the EP by then? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, 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 we knew who Black Flag was okay. as far as like the one four-track, seven-inch record. But you're standing in front of the guy? Like, that's impossible. And on that same afternoon, we meet Keith Morris. And then like about three minutes later, we met Tony Alva who's like, you know, the Keith Richards, Mick Jagger of skateboarding. And like, we know him from pictures in magazines and we're standing in front of him. And this was, you know, we're, we're like, you know, these corn dogs from Washington, DC, which is believe it or not, kind of small town compared to Los Angeles, San Francisco, which are these like throbbing cosmopolitan scenes. DC is about politics and power. This, these cities are about art and culture and danger. And um, we saw the Circle Jerks play, and the music was, like, blinding. Like, it was, like, so good. And we saw how the audiences were reacting, and it blew our minds. Like, we kind of, like, went back to Washington, D.C., telling our friends about, like, these, like these you know, 10-foot-tall people we'd seen in California because, like, everyone seemed, like, legendary. And a lot of the people we met ended up in that film Decline of Western Civilization by Penelope Cirrus. And so if you want to see, it's a really good documentary on rock. Yeah, but if you want to see the people that we met, almost all of them are in that documentary. And so um, that trip to California really uh, was a, a big, because we saw what could be. You know, you see that a scene can be bigger. And, you know, Ian really started working on Discord records, you know, and, and like networking, like getting other people's like numbers and addresses. And, he, you know, he called SST Records one day and met Greg and Chuck of Black Flag because, you know, that's Ian. He just gets on the phone and gets it going. And um, so suddenly he's in touch with like the Necros in the Midwest and they're changing, exchanging records. And he's writing bands in New York and he's sending them records and like he's starting to you know, uh, develop a network for himself, like because maybe he wants to go out there and play or he wants to sell that record in a record store on the West Coast, which in those days, which uh, was a almost impossible idea, but not for Ian. And so it was that time on the West Coast in summer 80 where we just had our minds blown and we kind of saw, you know, the future. And by the summer of 1981, like about a year later, I'm living in California. I'm the you know I'm I'm the singer in Keith Morris's old band. It was it's crazy, and it, it it reads like a screenplay, but all of that happened. I mean, how did it feel? One day you're in like a nine to five, steady income, an apartment, and next like you're sleeping on floors, but like yeah. you're in your favorite band, you know? Yeah, it was like it it was winning like winning the lottery, but you have to understand. You know, now we're talking in like 2024 and, you know, I, all of this is behind me, but in those days, you know, going from wearing an apron and a paper hat, serving ice cream, living in a small apartment with my roommate, you know, th these are very normal young person routines, minimum wage work, enough money to, you know, get by, pay your rent and all of that. And suddenly you're an extraordinarily low budget rock star. Um, it was so real. It was 
surreal in that it it was it was obviously happening, but it it just seemed like I was in a dream state. Like I, I'll never forget when you know I went up to New York and auditioned to be in the band, and they said you're in. I said in what? They said in Black Flag. I said me. They're like, yeah. Like you know, wake up. And I went back to Washington D.C. that afternoon on the train, with like you know the lyrics in in my fist, thinking I got to quit my job. I got to pack my stuff. I'm leaving. It was crazy. And like a week later, I'm in that van heading west, and it was you know. And by you know August, I'm on stage with Black Flag, you know, like playing all over. And by November of that year, October of that year, somewhere, we're um, in a studio, which is now a bank, uh, different building. Uh, we're we're recording the first ever Black Flag LP, and that's me. And, you know, I, I think back on those days, and I'm not one who lives in the past, but, you know, if we're talking about it, um, it was, it, things like that don't usually happen to me. And, you know, that kind of thing absolutely happened to me. Uh, crazy then, crazy now. I, I still think about it like, wow, that's, that's nuts. Yeah. So you, you recorded an EP in, in 1981 with your first band, SOA. Mm-hmm. How was it different uh, recording with Black Flag? Uh, well, uh, the band I was in at first, we had like thirty-five second songs, you know, and our our shows were like nine or eleven minutes in length, mostly tuning up and arguing. Uh, it was what it was, and then um, suddenly you're in this band that would practice like five hours a day where SOA practices like 35 minutes of arguing. Then I got to go to work. I have homework. And like, you know, everyone would kind of argue and leave. Um, Black Flag was like, you, you know, you put your bite plate in, put your helmet on and went into the game. And um, I said, I'm ready. They said, you're not ready. And like six weeks, two months later, of like five or six days a week band practice, like all day into the night band practice, then I was ready. And I, I started to realize what hard work is. Because, you know, I've been working hard in my minimum wage life. And then I joined Black Flag and I realized these guys, they're just, they're a, from a different bolt of cloth, if you will. And their ambition, you know, they're not trying to be big, rich rock stars. Like uh, uh, music like Black Flag, you're, you're never going to make a lot of money. That's just not going to be. But they just wanted to take over the world. And so imagine walking, you know, at, at a normal pace and you join a band where everyone is sprinting and suddenly you have to learn to sprint. And it was a learning curve that was basically sheer vertical. And so I, you know, I'm, I was 20 and, you know, and angry and, and, and hyperactive. Like I, I got into it. And suddenly you, you get better at the songs and you, you start to understand where the bass and the drums are and you realize what dedication and practice means and how seriously your bandmates take this. And then you realize, hey, I'm in the band too. I, I must take this as seriously. I never didn't take it seriously. I took it very seriously. But it just basically would redefine your definition of serious. And, and that was the first like eight months of being in Black Flag. And so I'm, I'm in the band by July, 
by December, I'm in England, like touring England with Black Flag being spat on right. you know, and playing with the damned. And like, you know, I used to go see the damned, you know, as a fan. And now I'm on the same stage with them. And I'm not saying I'm a peer of the damned, but I'm on the same bill. That's different. And, you know, those guys are friends of mine to this day. The nicest people you'll ever want to meet. But um, it was it a life change, I think, is kind of underselling it. It was like being broken down and reassembled as something else. And that is the, the product of that five years of, of being in Black Flag is basically made me the person I am now. It's like when people tell you about like when I was in the Marines or like my time in the army or, you know, my time in the Peace Corps, whatever. Um, it was my time in Black Flag that got me ready for pretty much every single other thing I've ever done since from starting my own companies, you know, making my own records, writing my own books um, being kind of fearless and going out into the world and like trying to be in movies and stuff like that. I, I learned, cause I'm not a tough guy. I'm not brave. I'm, I'm not ambitious. Um, but I learned to like get out there and put your face in the place, uh, from being in black flag. Cause on my own, I, I'm, I, I'm, I live alone. I work alone. I hardly see anybody. Uh, I talk to more people at the post office when I pick up my mail than I do. You know, this is, um, the only communication I've had via, uh, uh, like phone or whatever, uh, since I I've been back here about six weeks, I've talked to Ian a few times. I've talked to my manager twice past that. I've not spoken into a telephone. Okay. But reading your, your tour diaries from that trip to England that you guys did getting spat on every night, people putting up cigarettes in your body. Yep. And like throwing urine at you, and then you don't have a shower backstage. It just sounds like something that would break a person. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it it broke me a few times. Yeah. But but the strength, well, it, at least my experience has been, you you get the strength from the breaking. Like if you can't be broken, I think it's better to be broken, so you understand that you can be broken, and that you can also get back up. Uh, you you want to learn to win, learn to lose, and, and I, I think that's that's healthy advice because uh, losing is nowhere near as good as winning, and you you learn that by losing. And so, uh, my bandmates were infinitely tougher than I was, and so I had to learn all of that. And by the time we finished the summer tour in 1982, which I think concluded on July 6, 1982. Uh, in uh, California, I had been in the band about a year, like a year and a week, something like that. And I was a much different person than the one who left the ice cream store. So do you think there's like a sociological reason behind the violence or was it just the way things went back then? I went to shows here in Iceland in the early 2000s. I never experienced anything like the thing that you're, you know. Well, I think there's a number of reasons uh, uh, that it could be. First off, the difference between the United States and and Iceland, uh, and I'm not putting either place down. I'm just saying I, I think we can both agree that the cultures, while Western, 
um, you know, money, retail, gasoline, cars, bills, condominiums, all of that is the same. But the United States is a very different patch of real estate, a very different concept, a very different history, and just a, a different, you know, proverbial kettle of fish than anywhere. And so as far as violence, I don't know much about Iceland. I've been twice. It was beautiful. Um, the United States, and, and you know enough of the, the brief and bloody history of the United States, you know, birthed in invasion, genocide, slavery, graft, corruption, and institutionalized racism. That's the history of the United States, no matter how many members of Congress don't want students to know that. And, and it's not changed that much. Uh, the slavery has gone into the infrastructure. It's called minimum wage. And so America is a violent place. And so in the late 1970s, early 1980s, in the United States of America, you have a country that's still recovering from the Vietnam War culturally, still recovering from Watergate and Nixon and corruption in the Oval Office. You know, and of course, America is going through it again now. And so young people plus drugs plus violence plus Ronald Reagan. And that's a big deal on uh, him trying to clean up the streets of like, you know, young people, gay people and anyone on any kind of substance. Uh, the pushback was incredible. And as happens in a lot of youthful cultures, when young people, in my opinion, should be pushing back against the man or the government, law enforcement, uh, bad teachers, bad parents, quite often the people in that culture start attacking each other. Like you, you see gangs in America, like Bloods and Crips, like cops hate both gangs. The government and the FBI hate both gangs. Why are the gangs killing each other? Like you guys, like you're being hunted. You're both hated by the same people. Why are you making it easy for these guys? Like you make, you're so arrestable with what you're doing. Like knock it off. Like stop it. And so in the punk rock scenes in the United States, you know, in the night, about to about 1986, a lot of this, the big city scenes, Chicago, New York, you know, the, uh, some of these scenes had that violent element. Los Angeles was intense, like clockwork orange level. <laughs> like you'd see stuff, you're like, that's, is that guy going to be okay? Like you, you'd see some really bad things. Washington, D.C. got bad for a while. New York was, you know, like a, a punch up all the time. I, I'd be watching it from the stage. Mm-hmm. You know, there'd be stabbings at our shows. And, you know, thankfully they didn't stab me, but I don't want a young person stabbing anybody. Are you kidding? That's crazy. And so I, I noticed uh, by around 1987, a lot of the skinhead scenes in the United States, like punk rock scenes, a lot of those men and women had grown up or they, you know, now they're having kids or they, or they've joined the army or they're now your local cop or they're, they, they died right. or they just, you know, they just, you know, got a beer habit, you know, and just, you know, got, eh, you know, and they just put on weight and got a normal job. And that, that kind of hyper violent scene seemed to like ebb away with the sunsetting of the Reagan administration. And I'm not trying to blame one president for a, a cultural upheaval, 
I'm just saying those times were really intense. Right. In the 1980s, uh, in the UK, you've got Margaret Thatcher, which had punk rock culture boiling, and a lot of people in England angry. And simultaneously in the United States of America, you've got Ronald Reagan, who besides Donald Trump, ironically, will be the other transformational president of my lifetime. And so uh, in the United States, uh, between Reagan, police forces in major cities trying to understand what to do with punk rock, like in Los Angeles, they would just beat the hell out of people, the LAPD. Um, those days could often be hyper-violent as the people in those scenes basically internalized the abuse and turned it on each other. And I noticed uh, a lot of that behavior kind of faded away as the 80s came to an end. And I think that could be saying goodbye to Ronald Reagan and saying hello to MTV and how a lot of that culture got co-opted. And by the 1990s, you can go to a shopping mall and buy jeans that already have holes in them because your your child wants to look grunge. And so, as Greg Ginn of Black Flag so wisely said, uh, as uh, it's been said, the revolution will not be televised. Um, he said, well, the revolution will be televised. And uh, he could not have been more correct. And And the revolution was televised, you know, and it continues to be. And now we all watch. And so I think that was the major cultural reasons why punk rock scenes in the United States could be so violent. And basically, you know, what you had was people of your own age coming to shows who are homophobic, misogynist, and racist. You know, they're basically like their fathers. And punk rock to them was just a bunch of people who needed to get their asses kicked. And it was too bad, but it happened It happened quite often. Right. Uh, I want to wind back to the 80s for Black Flag, because you guys were halted uh, by the Unicorn label lawsuit. You couldn't release anything for like the whole duration of 1983, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And then you released, what, four albums in 84? Yeah, well, Greg Ginn at that time, he's like the band's leader and principal songwriter. The guy's writing songs like pretty much every day. And so through litigation, Black Flag, and I had nothing to do with it. I don't own SST Records. That's like SST Records is owned by members of Black Flag, but not this member of Black Flag. Anyway, Greg Ginn and Chuck Tukowski get into legal hot water with Unicorn Records. And there's you know a, a stop put on black flag making records because of some court decision meanwhile greg is writing songs and so we are touring playing entire full-length shows complete with encores of music that's not on records and you know there's no better way to anger an audience by playing them 90 minutes of music they have never heard and not playing the songs they have heard and those audiences you know they really want the songs they're familiar with, not necessarily the most open-minded bunch all the time. And Greg's new music would be vastly different than what had come before. And so there's this period 
late 82 through early 84, where Black Flag is writing songs and touring, getting, you know, mixed reactions of this new music because there's no album to help someone say yes or no to buying a ticket to go to the show. So they go to the gig hoping for the songs from the damaged album or songs previous to the damaged album. And they're getting, you know, Greg Ginn's new compositions, which are often like four to seven minutes long at, at like half the speed of the previous material, which would be the Slippin' In and My War album material, which we had by the end of 1982, we were playing a lot of those songs and they didn't you know, hit vinyl until like 84. And so that was a very interesting time. Like we're playing in Europe with those songs and people are like, not all that happy all the time. And, you know, they always take it out on the singer, of course. And so then by the time we were able to record and, you know, the Greg and Chuck had somehow extricated themselves from the legal hassles, we had this incredible surplus of music. And so we would rent studio time like we're living in the studio and we became this like song recording factory where the band would go in and just record. Sometimes they recorded songs like, like instrumentals that I had never even heard. That's how many. And then Greg would give me the lyrics later. He goes here. And like he's writing them that fast. And that's why my war slip it in. And I think loose nut all of that happened kind of like in one, you know, kind of exhalation because, you know, we, we kind of had all those songs almost at once. And Greg, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, I haven't seen the guy in a hundred years, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's still writing at that kind of metabolism. I mean, it's, it's in him, you know, it's just, it's what he does, but, but it was a, it was a, a tough time to be in that band because you couldn't, show the audience like you couldn't give them a preview of what they were going to get and you had to deal with their often <laughs> violent reaction uh or you know great disapproval or uncertainty on the night and again as i told you before there's no barricades and when the audience you know the, the one drunk guy in the audience who doesn't like the, this song that he's hearing he usually takes it out on the singer and that's where the cigarettes go into the legs and the ashtray gets thrown at my head and on and on. And it's not for me to go, well, he wrote it. I need <laughs> to suffer the slings and arrows. And so that was a, a you know, I, I characterized that time of like, you know, being in the wilderness, you know, just trying to, you know, just trying to keep moving as best we could. You started doing spoken words around that time, like back in 83, right? 1983, correct. Yeah, there was. Was a, that uh, just to fill up time because there was a considerable reduction in tour dates that year for Black Flag? I saw that. Well, yeah, no, we, there was a, a good amount of time we were like just stuck because again the, the court case. But um, we were we would do shows to pay the rent, but like touring was knocked out for a, at least 12 months or 14 months. But there was a, a local promoter in Los Angeles. He's no longer promoting, but he's still around. Pretty interesting guy. And he would put on these shows in Los Angeles. He would just like find a club and book a night. And he would get like 15 people on the bill. And everyone gets like five minutes or six minutes. And it'd be poets, actors, 
the guy from the gun club, the guy from the Minutemen, the bass player of Black Flag, plus like two well-known poets like Wanda Coleman, like who's passed away, but like an award-winning poet and like an actor from the film Taxi Driver. And you'd see all these names on this flyer and like, you know, it's a $6 ticket. So you go. And Chuck Dukowski, the bass player in Black Flag, he would often be on these bills and he'd go on stage and talk for like five minutes about the end of the world or some one of his like, you know, Darwinian Nietzschean <laughs> hellscapes he would describe. And I would go because we lived in the suburbs. We lived by the beach and these shows happened in Hollywood. And so I would get in the van and go into the city with Chuck to look at look at those Hollywood people. And one night at one of these shows at a place called the Lhasa Club on Hudson and Santa Monica in Los Angeles, um, the promoter said, you got a big mouth, Henry. Why don't you be on the bill the next time around? And I said, I, I, I don't know what I would do. He said, well, we're, we're paying like $5 you know, per person. I said, I'll take that money because you know, in those days, $5, you know, that will buy a lot of dented avocados. And so um, the, you know, weeks later, I'm on the bill for five minutes. And I, I told a, a, a quick story about what had happened at band practice the day before where a white supremacist tried to run over Greg Ginn outside of band practice. Uh, and I read a couple of things I had written on a folded piece of paper in my back pocket. And I looked at my watch. I go, well, my time is up. And I get this big applause and all these people going, do more. I'm like, well, my time is up. And after the show is over, people are coming up to me like, when are you doing that again? I go, what do you mean? Like, when are you going to go up there without a band? I'm like, well, never. I got this $5 bill. You know, I'm out of here. And the promoter guy, he called me days later. He said, you know, you're, you're a natural on your own on stage. Like, you've got it. How about um, let's put you on stage for like 15 minutes and you'll open. Yeah, he managed a bunch of people and you'll, you'll open for one of my poets. Okay. And then within six of those shows, that poet is opening for me because I become the draw. And these poets were not that happy about it. Um, and that was like summer 83 or so, at some point in 83. And by 85, uh, I was going across the country doing shows on my own, you know, drawing between 15 and 50 people. My goal was to one day draw 100 people. And then somewhere in 1985, I was flown to Holland to be part of a poetry festival where I'm, you know, on this bill with Jeffrey Lee Pierce and um, uh, William Burroughs and, and all these people. And like, I'm in Holland, which I, I'd, I'd been to before with Black Flag, but I'm, I'm here on my own because of my writing. I mean, I was on the same bill as Linton Queasy Johnson. I mean, it was just, Okay. Here's something else I can do. And that led to me starting my own little publishing company so I could put out my crappy books. And again, that's like learning the DIY thing from Discord and SST. You don't try and get your books signed at a printing press or a book company. You make your own company, of course. Like you don't even think about sending a manuscript somewhere. You just print something up and sell it at shows or, you know, mainly in those days, you just gave them away. Um, and so that became this thing that um, I was in your beautiful country, I think on February 1st uh, of last year, the first show of last year was in Reykjavik, Iceland. So it was, a, it's turned into a thing that 
takes up about 28 countries in two years to, you know, kind of take laps around the world to complete. But it started with a five or seven minute set with a bunch of cool people uh, at a small club in Los Angeles uh, many decades ago. And a less violent audience or what? The, 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 um, oh, far less. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and, and it, it became a thing, a bit of contention uh, with a certain member of members of black flag by the end of black flag. I'm, I'm getting the same amount of press on my own. Like, you know, pre press people would come to, you know, the afternoon of a black flag show like, Hey, you know, we're channel seven. Okay. Local news. And um, we're, we're here to talk to Henry. Well, what about the band? Well, we want to talk to Henry. And the photographer wants to take photos of, of Henry. Well, what about the band? No, 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 it's okay. Like we, we just want Henry. And that became kind of a, a bit of tension and it started to happen more and more. And then, uh, Hey, this film wants you to audition for a part. And sometimes in some cities, I would outdraw black flag on my own. And yeah, you know, it, I, I don't know what to say about that. Uh, and so I, it didn't make me think any differently about my duties in the band. I just, you know, I was just figured I'm young. I have a lot of energy. I'll just do all of it. And so up until I stopped doing music years ago, I would do a full band tour, you know, all the way around the world, you know, like from you know California to Tokyo and then, you know, come back. Uh, wash the blood out of my mouth and then leave again and do the whole lap over again on my own. And I would do, you know, I would do this continually. I'd come back from the talking tour and go right into band practice, write songs, make a record, go on tour and start the whole cycle over again. And then I stopped doing music and now I just do the shows on my own. But I, I started doing like that double touring thing from 1985 until about 2000 and two or three like content continuously so i would tours like two different completely different entities also when i look at your tour schedule you're often doing like back-to-back -back shows yeah for weeks at a time yeah up to 44 like last year uh, on the european tour uh where i was in in iceland um the last chunk of it was 44 shows in a row I think the last day off was like Slovenia or Slovakia, somewhere like that. And then it was just a show a night until we finished in England. And um, that's, you know, the agent, you know, the, the people who book the shows, you know, they're, they're like, really? Like, we don't, we don't work with anyone who does this. Are you sure you want this many shows? And I went, well, actually, I'd like more. And I, I noticed there's a day off. Um, like in, you know, on March 10th is a day off. Can you find us a show? They're like, yeah, we'll try you maniac, but you know, you don't have to push an agent too hard to try and find you a show. Cause when you are on stage, they get paid. And so that's one of the, the better relationships in, in the entertainment business, I guess. But, um, my, the people I travel with like road manager ward, the Australian tour manager I've been working with since like 2006, um, neither of us like nights off. Uh, and it's not about money or fame because I've never had much of either, believe it or not. Um, well, that is actually quite believable, but 
um, it, it's not about, hey, we're going to make a lot of money. It's just like it, it's a Tuesday night. Let's, you know, and what are we doing tonight? You know, sitting in a parking lot of a hotel because like we never get a hotel room. The, the bus driver, he'll get a hotel room. We just camp out on the bus. And by 8 p.m., like you're bored, like, you know, sitting in the bus watching TV. Or if you're in Europe or Australia, a night off, you're in a hotel. And, you know, as exciting as it gets for me is I find a coffee place and I, I work on a book manuscript where I can work out extra hard because I don't have a, a show that night, but I'd rather be on stage. And that's just, I learned that in Black Flag, where sometimes we would do two shows a night. You do like the seven and the 10. And, um, you know, try that with Black Flag music. Like, you better be in good shape because <laughs> like one of those shows will kill you too. Like me and the drummer, we would look at each other like, oh man, okay. Like, <laughs> like we'll probably be dead. Like in four hours, it'll be okay because we'll be dead. And we would just laugh about it. Like, yep, tonight we die because it's Dallas, Texas in August and there's no breathable air by the third song. And the singer and the drummer are just like huffing and puffing the whole night. And it's like, you know, 105 degrees inside the venue and you're going to do it again. You know, in, in an hour and a half, you go out on stage and you hit the same thing again. And then, you know, collapse on someone, some punk rocker's floor for five hours and drive to Houston, you know, whatever. Um, I, I learned that kind of metabolism of touring. That's like black flag touring. And I, I brought that into the Rollins band and then on to my own touring. And luckily, I have found people to work with. Who, like, you know, I've had the same, I've been working with this woman named Heidi, who manages me and, and helps me work with my companies. We've been working together for 26 years. She knows me very well. Like she, she's, she's the smart one. And um, I've also been working with another woman at my company for like 27 years. I mean, I, I've had, I've had these long relationships with people I work with and they kind of know how I want to do it. And so they go, okay. And what seems to be kind of crazy, they just get used to it. Like, you know, the, the touring, the way we tour, road manager Ward and I, we wouldn't do it any other way. So right. you just have to find the right people. So with that mindset, you didn't get a lot of panic when Black Flag was over. You just kept on going. Well, I realized, you know, the band broke up in like July of 1986 and by October of 1986, I was in Leeds, England, uh, making my first little solo record. And I realized if I must, as they say, hit the ground running. If I don't hit the ground and make something happen, I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll sit still for too long. And so I was smart enough, you know, the band broke up and literally the afternoon the band broke up. I was writing a song that ended up on my first record. And I was, as I said, in the studio with the band, uh, two Americans, two Brits uh, in a small recording studio in Leeds, England, uh, in, in October 86, making uh, a record called Hot Animal Machine. And by October 87, the Rollins Band is in the same studio with Ian McKay producing, making the Lifetime album which we wrote on the road touring with, you know, me and Andrew and Sim and Chris. And um, there was no pause. I realized I either make it happen, like, again, sink or swim. I chose to swim uh, frantically. And there's nothing like, you know, youth 
and desperation. Uh, it's not the worst mix, actually. You know, desperation, uh, I don't want you to be locked in a dungeon and be desperate that way. But desperate to not fail, you never know. You might get some good results from that. Right. Uh, had you worked with Chris before, the guitar player from Hot Animal Machine and, and the Rollins Band? He's like a childhood friend, right? I, I, I grew up with him. And he's, um, you know, he's one of the smartest people I've ever met, speaks multiple languages. Like, he, he's incredible. And so he was living in England because uh, he, he went to university in Leeds. And I would see him on Black Flag tours. When Black Flag would be in England, Chris would come and hang out. And, you know, I grew up with him. And we made a joke one day. We were walking in London. Uh, I had a day off and we're walking together in London. And um, he said, well, if Black Flag ever breaks up, like, ha ha, like that'll ever happen. Um, let's make a record. I went, let's do it. And so Black Flag, of course, breaks up a couple of years later. I'm in Washington, D.C. Uh, Chris is there. I called him at his parents' house. I said, Chris, the eagle has landed. Black Flag is broken up. And it's like, it's almost like he was waiting for my phone call. He's like, okay, I know a bass player and a drummer. We got this. I'm like, okay. And, you know, he had this band in England. And so we used his drummer, a bass player, friend of his. Like, it was three Americans and one British guy, British drummer, American bass player, his friend, a guy named Bernie, who's just a Washington, D.C. guy, uh, just one of Chris's you know, music friends. And we all uh, flew out to Leeds because Chris had uh, a, an apartment there. And so we all lived in Chris's freezing apartment, wrote songs, and went and recorded them. And that became my first solo record. I came back with this tape under my arm. I couldn't even pay for the two-inch tape. The two-inch tape, the multi-track, got recorded over the next day by some other band. No way. And so I, I only came home with the quarter-inch final mixes i i couldn't afford i could barely afford the plane flights and so came back got a record deal and by 87 uh the record came out i had a band and by the band got together in april of 87 by may we're on the road and we had a full american and u.s uh, and european tour booked somehow and we came to the end of it uh made the record and my bandmates flew home and I stayed and went right back on tour on my own. Met up with Lydia Lunch in London and and went back and did the kind of the same tour I had just done with the band with Lydia. And that tour ended, it went October, November, December, ended in Switzerland in sep in December. And I flew back to Los Angeles. Uh, with uh, the, the, the lifetime tape under my arm, uh, barely able to afford taxi, you know, cab fare to get from the airport to my apartment I was living in. You know, broke again, as, as always. Um, and so uh, the band ended up doing very well and uh, made records and toured all over the world for many years. Uh, but it's, it's that, again, that ethos of Black Flag. It's like, go, go, go. You see adversity, you just run at it. It's not even a, a, an idea about being tough. It's just, it's the idea of just not giving up. It's, it's the idea of, of um, resolve rather than ambition. 
and, and the, the two are very different. I'd rather have resolve than ambition. You know, like, you know, the ambitious guy is going to walk on your hands to, to get where he wants to go. Uh, the guy with resolve, he's just not going to stop. You know, death, you, you might kill him, but you're, that's the only way you're going to stop him. I'd rather be that guy than the one injuring someone to get where I want to go. Also, like there for a time in the 90s, you were like some somewhat of a mainstream figurehead for punk music, bringing new people in, you know. Well, what do you mean? Like being on... Or would you not agree? Or, or no, what, you mean like being on MTV and stuff? Yeah, yeah, you were like all over. Oh, yeah, know? no, I was going for it as hard as I could, um, trying to plant my flag on the moon. Um, I figured more press and notoriety, the better it would be for me and my band. Like I wanted to get our music out there. And so in those days, you could show up at MTV and they go like, hey, what are you doing this afternoon? Like nothing, we'll come and host a show. Okay. And so um, I would be on MTV as, as, as often as they would let me. Hey, you want to be in a magazine writing an article? Yeah. You want to be in a photo? Yeah. I, I was just putting my face in the place. Hey, we're a radio station. You want to do an interview? Yeah. Like anybody with a microphone or a camera, I'm like right in front of them unapologetically. And, um, you know, yeah, not, felt like you sent that message like to the non sellout 90s that it was okay to, you know, pay your rent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, if you give me money, you know, like I get to buy really exciting things like bass strings and snare drum heads and gasoline for the van. And like to this day, if you give me money, I just make projects. I, I drive a Mazda 6. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sitting in a small cold room built for me by, Uh, builder guys where I do my voice work for my little radio show. I, I'm sitting in an attic. Um, uh, all of my, the clothes I'm wearing right now, I bought most of them at Walmart and Amazon.com. I, I, I am kind of a, a, a cheap living person. Uh, I woke up this morning. I, I sleep in a sleeping bag on top of a, a fully made bed. Um, I, I'm a simple person. Work is what's important to me. If you gave me a ton of money, I wouldn't get a different car. I would just do the projects that I'm working on right now a little faster. I'd be able to bring someone in to help me scan images where I'm not scanning them on my own. I could have someone scan them for me so I could do five other things. And so uh, in those days, people were sometimes like, oh, you're trying to be this big. I'm like, no, man, I'm, I'm just trying to get out there. And finally making some money, it's so amazing to be able to pay your rent, you know, and, and to be able to like, you know, uh, buy the equipment needed to go on tour. Like if you're on tour with a band, you know, you're going through equipment, like you're just destroying it as you go. Like strings break, you know, gear breaks all the time, like all the time, microphones just fall apart. And so, um, It's a high rate of consumption of gear that you're going through. So when the band finally started making some money, like when my book company started making money, I used all of that to get an office. I had a damn office. Like, yay, I got a staff. Like, we're doing stuff. We can now put out Nick Cave's books in America. I can put out The Birthday Party, like one of my favorite bands. I, I can put out Alan Vega Records, the guy from Suicide. You know, I, you give me money, I'm doing stuff. I'm making things happen. I'm still living in a crap apartment. 
Um, but I'm, I'm, you know, we're, we're making things happen. And so there were, there'd be contentious interviews. Like how come I'm seeing you in a movie? Because the guy said, Hey, can you act? And I said, no, <laughs> but let me try anyway. Because I'm, I'm Henry from the ice cream store. I have no, no illusions. I'm the minimum wage guy who got into a crazy band in the summer of 1981. I'm still that guy. And, and, you know, I've been in films with everyone from Al Pacino to Will Smith. I've, you know, met all of those kind of people. Um, I don't have their phone numbers. I'm not trying to hang out with them. Um, it's just been an interesting ride. But at the end of the day, I get up every day and I work. And like every day. I work seven days a week. I'm obsessed with my dopey little projects like books and radio shows and whatever else. And um, I've, I've got a lot of work I'll be doing this year. I, mean, I won't be on the road, sadly, but I, I still have, you know, I'm up to my eyeballs in, you know, obligation and expectation. And, it, and it's not about money. It's about output. I, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm going to try and put out three books this year. My manager, she's going to argue with me. She's going to opt for two, but I'm going to press for three because I've got them done. Uh, there's about like 500,000 words waiting to get the final edit, which we're going to start in February. Um, but it's not about, hey, we're all going to get rich and sit on our behinds. It's like we're going to get these things done so we can get the next project started. Right. Uh, so I read your new bu- book. It's called uh, Sick. Uh-huh. Oh, thanks. And that you released uh, just over a year ago. Yeah. And you cover a few bases. You're talking about your friend Joe Cole. Yeah. And also just the state of America, like the police, school shootings, death penalty. A lot of it was uh, kind of tough to read. Yeah, it, it, it was written that way. But then you do have this hilarious part where you're dealing with online scammers. Yeah, and all of that is is you know all truly taken from interactions I had. You know, it was the beginning of COVID. You can't go anywhere. You know, like and so I'm like, okay, well, um, this idiot like wants to take my money. Let's have some fun. And it's a kind of writing I really enjoy because you can just you know be a <laughs> be a maniac. And the, these, you turn these people who are trying to scam you, you turn them into unwitting dupes who get pulled into your, <laughs> into your world of BS. And uh, it's, you know, to me, it's, it's perfect comedy. It is. It's really good. Like Andrew Guzman and Space Force, Samantha, like um, amazing characters. Yeah, thank you. you. Yeah. Aha! Yeah. Andrew Right. Aha! Aha! Yeah, it's, it's just, you know, it's, sheer stupidity but just to actually make these people lose their temper it's the best like to get a human reaction out of these people it's like you know you got to them and that was uh you know i sunk their battleship and they would like write me like yeah, how dare you like like oh, really like, you're trying to steal from me and you're angry it's it's funny and so, um, yeah, the, and, and you know, I'm sure you know that the, the word sick, you know, means thus. And it, they, that basically, you know, sets is the, the kind of the message of the book. There's my writing with no restraint whatsoever. You know, there's all the anger, there's all, all the sadness, and there's all the opinions with no filter whatsoever. 
you know, I wrote the book, you know, in solitude. And then I gave it to my manager, Heidi and I, we, we do the final edit of my book by reading it out loud. And like, you know, one weekend I send her the manuscript and by Monday, she's like, really? Or we're going to put this out. I'm like, yeah. She went, okay. And, um, people seem to like it, which is always interesting. I mean, a lot of stuff in your, in your past is angry. I feel like this is more maybe relaxed anger or something. Disappointment. Yeah, and you know the 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 you know when I when I when I write about the United States of America, you know, in the age of of Trump, or as I call him now, P zero one one three five eight zero nine, his felon number. Um, that that writing it comes from, you know, anger and disappointment that the American experiment, like you, now you're seeing it, like the sheet has been pulled off the thing, and you're seeing, like it it, it was never about equality; it was always about money. And corruption has always just been about capitalism, and, and slavery never went away. It just went into the infrastructure, and, and you know the oh the founding fathers would be rolling in their graves. The founding fathers would probably be really proud of a guy like Donald Trump, or a guy like George W. Bush, or Ronald Reagan. You know where the money keeps going to the top, and America's more and more corporatized, and they would go like good. Finally, like, you know, the aristocrats have all the money and everyone else is on the plantation. And so a lot of that, you know, that kind of anger comes out in that book because it's what I think about a lot. When I look at this country, you know, I, I, I think the United States of America, it's a mixed bag. Like we gave the world, you know, P-Funk and the Bad Brains and Jane's Addiction. Like there's really good stuff like John Coltrane, Jimi Hendrix, James Brown. And then, you know, we gave the, the Southeast Asia Agent Orange and Napalm. Like, and, and you can't curse on the radio. The country that gave you Napalm and you can't curse on the radio. Like, the hypocrisy is unbelievable. And I, I don't know. It's very, sometimes very hard to live in this country because of the hypocrisy. And, you know, a, a cop shooting some kid 17 times, like no one gets in trouble. Like, huh? It's where you look at the news and you're like, what? This is, this is real. And then at the same time of like the 90 countries I've been to, I can't think of any other country I'd rather live in, but this one. I, I like, I, I like it here. So you think you'll never leave the U.S.? Uh, at, th at this point, no. Because uh, I'm making plans here that will probably like almost cement me in the United States of America. And it could very well be, you know, in an, in the effort of keeping it real. Why do I like it so much? Because I'm a Caucasian, educated, heterosexual male. And when you are that combination, there's a good chance that the brochure of America, like, hey, it's the greatest place. Um That is true for a guy like me, where a high school graduate, which is all I am, can do very well by at least the standards my father had, which was like successful people are rich. And that was his complete and only idea of success in this country. It wasn't about being honest or kind or good. It was about having money. And... um And so as far as being a success on a lot of evaluations, a lot of tests, 
you can say that I've been very successful and continue to be successful. Um, but how much of that is white privilege? You know, that it's basically like, uh, as they say, using a baseball metaphor, uh, you, you were born on second, you stole third and, you know, you think you're a baseball player. Uh, and, and so, uh, the, to be a white male educated heterosexual, uh, in the United States of America, you've got a leg up on literally millions of Americans like who are going to have a life of, you know, driving an Uber and being slightly upside down on their mortgage, you know, not able to pay or, you know, a divorce in two kids where every day is like this tricky maze of not spilling the soup, you know, just. And so I realized that a lot of the success I've had, it's not, it was not the, the goal. The goal was not to make money. Uh, the goal was to be like art guy, like to make things. And maybe because I'm a, a, a white male heterosexual who can finish a sentence, maybe I've been able to realize those objectives because of where I was born, when I was born, and the fact that I'm a heterosexual white male. And it's not like I wake up feeling guilty, but I do make a conscious effort not to make it worse. And that's tr a trickier endeavor uh, than you might think in this country. It's very easy to be part of a problem unwittingly and being part of a solution becomes a far more complex, a more nuanced performance, as they say. I see we're almost out of time. So uh, I really want to thank you for coming on, man. Well, you're, you're very welcome. Thanks for the interest. You're releasing your fourth installment of Stay Fanatic later this year? Uh, I'm going to try. That's the book that'll be in contention with good old Heidi. Um, I'll be working on it later today, actually. Uh, I have one or two more scans to go and one more draft of proofreading, and I'll bring it to the boss, and I'll see if she'll let me put it out this year. Well, it was an uh, honor and a pleasure, and I uh, hope I'll talk to you later sometime. Well, I, I, I hope I uh, thank you. Uh, I, I hope I didn't answer too long in any of the answers and you didn't get all of your questions asked. I, I tend to run long. I'm sorry about that. No, it's cool, man. It's totally it was it was awesome. All right. Well, have a great week and uh, thank you again. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll meet at some point down the road. All right. That was my conversation with Henry Rollins. What an awesome guy. And just so uh, unbelievably sweet. So thank you guys for tuning in to Peeling the Onion. I really do appreciate it. My name is Alvar. And uh, I'll be coming at you soon. I got great interviews lined up. So tune in and take care of each other. Thanks. Thanks.